Hello, and welcome to this episode of Data Unchained. Great guest today that has a lot of experience in a lot of different technologies around putting data to work around the globe and kind of how the industry has evolved over the years. Um, I'm super excited to invite David Chapa, who is a longtime industry colleague. Um, he's worked at competitors. He's worked as an analyst. He's worked as a friend. He's a neighbor. Um, so I'm, it's great to have you here, David. Thanks a lot for having me. This is going to be fun. I'm, en I'm enjoying this already. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about your background. We can see, if, for those of that are watching on video, that you have kind of an eclectic even background behind you right now. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about you're one of those unique people that's not just a technologist, but has a lot of other interests in life. Yeah. So technology has always been uh, the thing that I've been rooted in. But music is the other thing that I'm um, very, very passionate about. So I'd say there's two, there's two passions I have, technology and music. And uh, you see a small collection of guitars behind me. Uh, and actually over uh, behind that brown guitar uh, is Johnny Cash's road case for his Martin D35 that he used to travel with until um, he decided to do more air travel. And he got a different case for that so it could fly in the belly of the plane. That's and pretty so special. I, yeah, it's, that's a pretty cool thing. I don't think I'll ever part with that. You can't see it, but it does say House of Cash on the front and address and telephone number. I've been playing guitar for almost 40 years, um, semi-professionally for about uh, 25 or 30. And then uh, I did a stint professionally for about uh, five, five, six years uh, where I was doing um, a Johnny Cash tribute show. And I play with Johnny Cash's drummer, W.S. Holland. And uh, we... We have performed that show for thousands of people, and uh, it's it's been a blast. You didn't do a tribute show at the Warrior Dash and Copper ones, did you? I did not, no. <laughs> so this is an embarrassing, I shouldn't even admit this to you, much less everybody who listens to the podcast, but we were up in Copper doing one of those you know, mud runs where you do obstacles and run around the, the ski resort in the summer. And the night before, they had a Johnny Cash tribute band, and I didn't actually realize it was not possible for Johnny to be playing. I thought it was actually him. And, you know, maybe there's a few cocktails involved. And I was like, Oh, my God, And I put on Facebook, I'm listening to Johnny Cash, which I was quickly shamed and didn't know that's not actually Johnny Cash, Molly. Yeah. <clears throat> How know. funny would it have been if that had been you? <laughs> that would have been, that been <laughs> funny. That would have been funny. But that's I mean, that's my passion, mu music and technology. And uh, matter of fact, I'm actually playing a gig this Sunday um, at a place locally um, from from one to five. But nice. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I, I in record Castle Rock, still. Colorado. Yeah, in Castle Rock, Colorado. It's fun. And it's what's brilliant about, I think, uh, both music and technology, there really is a connection there because, you know, you, you can't see it to my, my right, but I've got my recording um, mixer over here, which is 100% technology, right? And you think about how how data flows, signal flows. This signal is the data that goes into my board that that translates into something meaningful and compelling that I can create and then deliver. And the the collaboration that I do with a friend of mine in uh, Tennessee uh, who has the same board is incredible. So we can I can record music here. I can send him all the stem files. He can bring it in, and then he brings in studio musicians uh, to add their layered parts onto the song that that we're recording, the song that I wrote. So, um, you know, it's 
it's interesting for me as I look at what I do professionally uh, on the technology side and the music side, and there's a lot of there's a lot of intersection. I think that's kind of a cool concept. So you can create music with somebody who's not local to you, blend it, mix it, <clears throat> update it, whatever you want to do, sitting from your home offices, not unlike us podcasting from our home offices or, you know, collaborating on data science. I remember 20 years ago working for another company, Sony was a big customer and it was a big deal for them to replicate the, the tracks that they were using from LA to New York for background vocals or for, you know, other things they were doing from an engineering perspective. That was a big deal. And now you look at what you know, David Chapa can do from his home studio with a guy who's got a professional recording studio in Tennessee. I can do that very same thing. I mean, the advancement that we have seen in technology, just from a, you know, a hobbyist perspective um, is really incredible. Now take that to, you know, the next level and what we look at from the industry. And it really has opened things up considerably. It's a really interesting segue into the conversation about data and how businesses are using data. You and I were talking, you know, as we were getting ready for this conversation about data locality and the kinds of conflicts that occur as Davis data starts to become more localized. Maybe just let's start off the conversation there. Well, just take this, this situation here, having all the files right here, I could very easily um, put it up into a shared drive, right? Which many of us, many of us do. Dropbox or whatever, right? G Drive. And getting access to that, if you think about getting access to that from an application, you, there's a certain bit of latency that an application can tolerate. There's a certain bit that it can't tolerate. And so <clears throat> getting that data actually to a place where there is not going to be a challenge for the application is really important. Years ago, when we were talking about erasure coding, Remember that when it first started, Absolutely. you know, yeah. it came out when this new thing instead of RAID came out and it was done yeah. in software. And we were talking about how erasure coding would make life so much easier for people with big amounts of data because you can distribute that. You don't have to send all of it. You can distribute it. That's kind of where we're at. You, you've got to be able to get access to the data more locally. And so we've gone, we've gone beyond that. We're still using erasure coding, of course, but we've gone beyond that. Getting the data as close to the application as possible allows you to be as productive as possible. Same thing with, with this. If I can get this data to you know, my friend Dan um, as quickly as possible so that he can get access to it and get access to the musicians, their schedules, their timetables, and then get the work done, then um, we don't lose any money. I don't lose any money because I'm the one paying for the, for, the, for the musicians. If it takes them longer because of the latency issues, all of a sudden that opens up Pandora's box and budgets get squashed. And in some cases, projects get uh, either delayed or terminated. I also think that you know, the analogy of getting a file out in, let's say, Google Drive, the benefit you get of being able to share it, change, do change control, access from outside your organization. I think most of us, no matter what we do for a living, can understand what the big benefit that was versus emailing around a Word doc that now you had change control, you weren't able to collaborate on. Like, I think we, everyone really, I, I can't even fathom going back to doing my job where you had to email Word doc, wait for the person to give you input, email it back, and then send it to the next person that I can't imagine 
my personal productivity not having those tools. And when you think about massive data sets, um, hundreds of thousands of files, many petabytes of data, whatever it is, um, that same concept is fantastic if you could accomplish it with these massive data sets. But tools like SharePoint and Google Drive don't work for these massive data sets for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, so you think about, okay, why not? It's, it's the scale, it's the latency, it's the performance, it's the, you know, ability to derive metadata and information from those files that is pretty specialized beyond what people do with their home office tools, right? That's very true. The, um, I don't know how many years ago this was, but I know I was working for ADIC. Um, so it was probably Less around 2000. I haven't heard in a while. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> amazing there's... company it's time. Yeah. Well, in, in 2003, when I started with them, I was looking at data. I was a big backup. I still want big backup guy, backup recovery, disaster recovery, but I was looking at data and looking at the technology they were developing at the time, which was their, their Pathlight VX, right? It was their virtual tape library. And one of the things that I, um, that I said in, in an engineering meeting, I said, you know, at some point, the metadata is going to be more valuable than the data itself. And I got a lot of pushback um, from everybody. But the reality is the, the, meta, the data around the data really is the most important thing. Now, we, we have constructs today to protect data, uh, data protection, backup recovery. Some would say those are table stakes today, right? Everyone, you can do that. But getting access and understanding and discovering the data around the data, not everyone does that as well as potentially others. And so I think having that, um, um, having that access and having that understanding uh, is, is super important. You know, it's, it's, that's about locality. It's about creation. It's about access time. It's about so many things that are, that's, you know, critical to that data itself. You know, it, it, that brings up all these memories of things we've discussed in this industry over the years. I, and it makes me think a little bit about that, that same analogy of data versus metadata. Why does it matter? And we spent so much time figuring out how to just store data, make bigger disk drives, make higher capacity tape, make sure it's reliable, make sure you can recover. And that's all about storing the data. And back when I was working more in the backup industry, there was a lot of conversation about, that's really just insurance policies. You know, that's your homeowner's insurance just in case. You know, we put so much effort into that, just the storing of data versus the using of data. And I think that's really what you're getting to around this concept of metadata is, okay, we've as an industry focused for so long on just how to find a place to put all this data that's being created so fast. And now there's a huge focus on, wow, we're a data-driven world. How can we actually get value from the data, insights, you know, solve COVID, whatever it is. Um, and that's really all about metadata and harvesting information of those big data stores. Is, is that generally what you were thinking back even when you were at ADIC? Oh, gosh, even before that. So uh, I know the year, 1998. I was working for a large uh, telecommunications company in northwest suburbs of, of Chicago. And uh, it was all about the the data itself. They, they wanted to get access to the data and run some 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 tests, validation tests, whatever. They were running clear case for development, so checking in code, checking out code. They wanted to to, to run some some tests against it uh, for other things. And 
as the backup guy, I said, hey, go go right ahead. But if if you mess up production, this is how long it's going to take us to recover. And so at that point, I thought, man, we are, and I started using this phrase, we are dead ending data to tape. Now, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, someone that's going to be a Debbie Downer on tape. I think tape still is a good, a good solution. Um, I think that it has its place. Um, tape certainly has shifted down the continuum of data protection uh, quite a bit, but that's where we were before. We were um, dead ending data to tape, and and it was in a tarball, <laughs> right? So it was in a in a format that. No one could read except the application. What was the purpose of that other than just protecting us against uh, failure, file deletion, right? And, and and there was nothing else there. So if we wanted to test, if they wanted to test, I had to restore all that anyway. So that got me thinking there's got to be a better way. So it was around 2000 that um, that I started to look at just disk. Give me some JBODs. And let me back up to to disk. And so while it was still in a in a tarball format, it was faster to recover that because it's coming off of disk. I don't have to worry about you know shoe shining or anything like that with the with the tape. And then it was around 2002, 2000, it was 2002, 2003, that uh, we started to see deduplication come in. So we now we had this infinitely uh, uh, deep, well not infinitely, still was you know had its its limits. But we had a right, deeper, the ten or twenty or forty X deeper. Yeah, whatever whatever that ended what up being for your compression. Mm-hmm. But then we had we had the challenge of recovery again with with that. So it's I mean we we've been and we've been in a state where it's been very difficult. Fast forward and it really is now we've got the ability to recover data into a sandbox or a playground area where you can run these types of tests and you can run these types of validations and audits um, very, very quickly. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where my head was going with this is, you know, you've got data. Let's not, let's not dead end it. Let's figure out a way you can, you can use it. That's, it's an investment. It's a coin. Think of it as a coin. How are you going to invest that coin? Exactly. You know, during that, that same kind of time frame. I was tracking on a similar path, and this was when we created the Active Archive Alliance. And it was around the idea of, okay, you've got these massive data sets, largely at the time on tape libraries, in a tarball, VTAR, whatever it is, some kind of proprietary format. And the idea of putting a file system in front of that, so you could use NFS, SMB, standard interfaces, was unlocking all kinds of opportunity for now application owners to be able to interact directly with the data. Maybe it was a bit slower, you know, than if it was on flash or disk, but you could actually interact with it, um, access it directly and not have to go through an IT process of recovering it out of a tarball to a file system to then be able, or to a database, whatever it is to be able to work with. And that was a, that was a big advancement, you know, being able to do that. And some of those technologies had been around a lot longer. Um, but, most general organizations, you know, HPC maybe knew about it, but the rest of the industry did not. And that's that's really kind of one of the evolutions was starting to make data accessible to the application or to the user directly. Um, but you think about all these tools and um, that kind of moves on to this concept of data gravity. And we've still created these because of the infrastructure centric approach on just struggling to be able to retain data 
as fast as it's being created. Um, we've created these pools of data that have an enormous amount of data gravity and, you know, within the industry. And I mean, you've been a bit of a pundit in addition to a technologist and, you know, you could ask these questions a lot, but, um, you know, what are your thoughts on data gravity? Is this something that vendors created selfishly, vendors created because there was no other answer? Um, is it just a law of physics we can't overcome? So some people may not like what I'm about to say about data gravity, but you know, I think it was a term that was developed so that we had something else to say um, about data. I think data, when I think of data, data carries weight when you need it, right? So um, when when you're not accessing that data, it can be somewhere else. And you can talk about data gravity and how you have all this data you're managing. But really, data itself is, is only that important to you when you actually have to have access to it. So, it, you know, I think about um, data being spread across multiple silos of storage, right? And so sometimes you do that in a hierarchical um, uh, process where you're moving it to different tiers of storage. Um, other times that's done because IT has brought in a new tier of storage that they want to they want to use and play with it's maybe it's faster it's bigger it's deeper whatever that is but i have a i have a hard time with the uh with with data gravity i remember the person that that first came out with that i kind of liked it at first and then i started to see that there was a lot of misuse of that of that term from the original intent um bottom line is that for me the the data the data carries weight i think of that dave clark five song you know he ain't heavy he's my brother um it ain't heavy it's my data and it's my data needs to be there when you need to have access to it so i've got to have a system that's going to allow you to find it get it use it and then produce with it um whatever that looks like you want to call that data gravity let's call it data gravity you want to call it accessibility, let's call it data accessibility, whatever that is, but that's what it comes down to. And, and I brought up the word silo. Um, I don't think anyone at IT has ever woke up in the morning and said, you know what? I really want to have four or five different silos of storage. I think that would be a really fun thing to do in my environment. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why the metadata is so important because when you do have these silos, you do need to understand locality. Where is my data? What is the level of importance or that, that weight, if you want to give it that. Um, and then what are my best methods and approaches for allowing my customers, my end users to have access to this data? So I think that the concept of, metadata and data becomes even more important if you kind of follow this line of thinking that generally metadata is what you know, a fraction of a percent of the size of the actual data set depending on what kind of data it is it's, but it's small it's light in comparison and if you can think about moving metadata around that's that's realistic especially with 5g networks and um you know the tools that are out there to you know WAN acceleration, things like that as you're moving around, that I think that's another piece that people often don't think about. They think about, there's no way I can move a petabyte, but there is a way you can move a fraction of a percent of a petabyte, especially if it doesn't have to be done real time, you know? And I, that as an industry, I think, as people think about, 
I need my data silo, you know, because it has certain attributes. It has a certain cost profile, performance profile. Great. IT can do that or whatever fits within budget. But if we can raise this metadata up and make it accessible and share it in other places, you can overcome this concept that you have to be local to your data because you can move your metadata around. Does, does that track with how you would think about it and how the industry is evolving? Exactly. And, I, and I've written about this. Um, I, I published a book in 2003, I think it was, same year I started with ADIC, uh, called Implementing Backup to Recovery. And it was it was about understanding the, the data, the nature of the data, right? Um, when you talk about disaster recovery, business continuity, one of the, the things I've, I've, I've been preaching for 30 some years is you got to really understand the data that you're protecting so that you can restore the data that you need when you hit that wall. And that wall is a declaration of disaster. So when, when that happens, you need to understand what you're recovering. If you're recovering meaningless data, meaningless being maybe it's, you know, MP3s that are, are non, non-essential to run your, your, your business operation, that's taking up very valuable time. So if you can at least start with the metadata and understand the nature of the data and then create some baselines, then all of a sudden you can have a better understanding and insights into what you're managing, protecting, and potentially having to recover. So I think that's where, for me, that's where I see metadata being super valuable is just in the uh, categorizing your data, putting them into certain buckets. You know, back back in the day, I used to, I used to tell people all the time, when you get a new file system and a new storage repository, create functional directories and then put the data for those functional areas into those directories so that when you do a recovery and you set up your backup policies, you know exactly what is the priority. And of course, nobody ever did that. So <laughs> it's very hard to control oh, user behavior at scale, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, when you think about the importance of this, and while we talk about it a lot in the data industry, I don't know if everyone really puts the pieces together because they don't sit and think about it on their drive to work or on their bike rides like we do. But this data relevance, and you think about, um, oh, I don't know the latest data, but there's more data created every two years now than was created in the entire history of the world or whatever the, the latest numbers are. If you think about the evolution of things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and these applications which can derive all kinds of interesting insights that we in our human minds might not even think to ask or certainly couldn't process that much data. Um, it becomes very relevant to think about, okay, I spent my last 20 years of my career or my IT team spent the last 30 years storing all this data. Imagine if you could make that data accessible to, and no matter if it's in a tape library or in a VTL or in a cloud S3 bucket, whatever, to AI and ML to start to learn from or gather information that all of that data now can be used and it's not stuck in a, oh gosh, I don't know where Max put it in his folder 20 years ago, so I don't know what to do with it. We can actually use all of that data. And to me, that's where this conversation becomes so relevant that not only is it a forward-looking conversation, but you could actually get a lot more information from all that work you did over the last 20 years. I know that data point you're talking about, by the way, because I think it was around 2006, 
that IBM Research came out with this white paper on the amount of data that we are creating as a society. This was 2006. They said we are creating 2.1 quintillion bytes of data every day as a society. That's 2.1 exabytes of data. That's 2006. If you look at IDC, look at some of the other major players in the research, they're projecting by 2025, I think it is, that the the universe, the data universe should be around 184, 185 zettabytes of data. Now, does all that data need to be managed, protected, and you know curated uh, from the enterprise? No. But the fact that that data is growing at that rate, and and <laughs> I, I tell people all the time, you know, when I, when I get presentations, there's always a slide in there from marketing that talks about data growth. And I ask for a show of hands, how many of you know that data is growing? Okay, great. Everyone knows that. Now let's talk about what the depth of that growth is and how is that affecting your day-to-day? That's really what that slide is about. It's not about the fact that it's growing. It's how is it affecting you, IT managers, IT admins, IT directors? And the fact is, it's a challenge for them because to your point, how do I find, you know, how do I find Max's golden, uh, golden chest of treasures that he created when he was here and now he's no longer here for us to, to contact to find out? That's, that's, that's the problem I think we're seeing with a lot of management over the, the data in these silos. So one of the areas that I've had really interesting executive staff conversations on in the last you know, five or so years has been as data scientists have come into the organization. And you have these folks who are coming out of school largely that know are code horses. They are you know analytical. They're ready to do data science. And then they show up and as a team and say, okay, I need my data IT team. And you know, in some cases, there's a data engineer creating the data purpose-built for what they're doing. But in a lot of cases, they need to harvest those old systems. And so IT gets put in an even tougher spot that now not only are they trying to serve their budgets and their data growth, but they're also trying to feed this new team of data scientists who can't self-serve, really, because of the way that data has been stored. And so it's really create even more pressure. I always think that all the pressure ends up coming still on IT in these environments because they have to be involved because of the way the architectures were set up over the last 20 years. And by no fault of their own, it's what, what was available. 100%. You bring up data scientists. I feel like I need to put on my beard so I look more <laughs> data scientist-like. Um, when, when that whole title started to become more relevant um, in IT and your, your chief data officer, one of the things that I, I asked a lot of questions about you know, that role and <clears throat> what the intent is of that role. And I got the best, the best definition from a guy in Singapore. He said, my, the important, most important part of my role is to know what questions to ask of the data. I'm like, that's, that's great. I said, so you get access to that data immediately, and then you can kind of create your, your data schemas. He's like, well, getting access to the data is different than knowing what questions to ask <laughs> of the data. And so to your point, how do I extract that value? How do I, how do I get that? And it's not just the data that's spinning on disk. It's data that's under management. And I think that we, we sometimes forget that data under management might be in a tarball still. It might be in a, on, a, on an LTO cartridge. 
it, it might be anywhere else other than a, a spinning scientist machine next to a sequencer, right? Right. I mean... Yeah. So you, you've got to be able to have access to that data. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking one of my clients, it was a financial company up in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, um, which is a great thing to, to say in Menominee Falls. Um, they, I was, I was consulting with them. I was on a three month uh, contract and I stayed there for like two years uh, consulting with them on data protection and disaster recovery. One of the things that they did was they made duplications of their tape and sent it off site forever, irrespective of, of expiration. I told them that was a major exposure. You needed to bring that data back or those tapes back. You need to, you know, get rid of it. And because that's that, if you get subpoenaed, you know, they could have access potentially to anything else that's, that's not expired. The response was, we have enough money. And if we get, if we get sued, then, you know, we can deal with it. Well, they were on, came under investigation um, and long story short, uh, some trading abnormalities were, were found, uh, abnormalities. And, uh, basically the company's acquired by Wells Fargo and the executives, you know, barred from trading for life, that type of thing. Again, having access to the metadata, knowing what data you have under management is super important. It can be the difference of knowing what to ask of your data from a data scientist perspective or what we legally need to maintain and retain and what we can legally get rid of. And so this is an understanding of data that, that goes beyond just, you know, I want to know um, how many MP3 files we have on our, on our system. This, this goes into much, much greater depths. You know, what are we, what are we protecting? Okay. We're protecting our email. Great. Now, how long do we have to keep that for 31 days? Great. How much of that are we keeping? That's beyond 31 days. We need to eradicate that, that data. So it's, I mean, the metadata goes beyond just even the what what you think is the the normal use of metadata in you know categorizing understanding locality creation but also the the after management of it at hammerspace the company who i work for we were using a term which isn't new in the industry but it hasn't been used that much around data objectives and so instead of setting a policy and trying to remember for my various compliance rules delete this after this amount of time or archive this after that amount of time, being able to set objectives as a business or as an IT administrator saying, my objective is I want to protect against this, meet this compliance rule, and then have the system just automatically take care of it across silos and softwares and things like that. But those objectives have been difficult to translate into a myriad of policies and different software and storage systems just because there's so much to do. And that's another challenge IT always ends out in. Um, but that's really what it's about. You have to meet your business objectives. And sometimes that's innovation. Sometimes that's protection. Sometimes it's avoiding ransomware. And the more we can do as vendors to help make that easier and maybe more automated, the more successful organizations will be in meeting their goals. Um, Thinking about vendors, just for a minute before we tie up, you know, we've we've talked a lot about vendor technologies, some things, you know, proprietary things like, you know, proprietary tarballs, things like that. Where do you think our industry should go in the next 10 years to help companies accomplish their objectives? And I'm thinking about 
open source and thinking about um, ease of accessibility, you know, any of those things, what would just jump to the top of your mind as far as what vendors can do to make this easier on organizations? Boy, that's a, that's a loaded question. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things I think that we could do, you know, and I think that it's a challenge for some organizations to say, you know what, I'm going to turn the key on this and make it open source. But there are certain areas where I think that's, that's important. That's, that's, that's a, that's a critical thing to do uh, for the greater good of IT and for, you know, in some cases, national security, you talk about ransomware. Um, I think, you know, from, from the, the ransomware side, which is something that I've been looking at quite a bit, um, there's gotta be something more that's happening. Um, I still, I don't have, I don't have the accurate stats here, but I'm pretty confident that the point in time when customers identify that they have been infected with malware, right? Malware, ransomware, what have you, is it's not when they get the ransom. It's usually about 80 days uh, in the past when they first were affected. And and years ago, um, like in 2015, that number was 200, like 212 days, 222 days. So, you know, understanding the data movement, understanding, you know, anomalies. I think that's the thing that we need to look at really in, in managing data are those anomalies, creating a baseline. And then from that baseline, if I see anything that goes off, up and down, you know, it's like, it's like a heartbeat. Okay. If you're, if you're, if your resting heart rate is X and I see that it goes up by, you know, seven points, 10 points, there's something, something alarming there. I, I, I wear a, a fitness band that tracks my heart rate. And if it goes up above a certain heart rate, it's going to say either you're, you're working really hard or you need to call 911, right? So those types of things, I think that we need to look at from a dashboard perspective, um, they're not, it's not, it's not binary. It doesn't say, okay, we are infected. We couldn't in fact have a migration going on. So we have, we have multiple terabytes of data being moved. Sure. But alert but the human to take a look. Ex that's my point, right? Right. I, I've, I found an anomaly. I, I am your security bot or whatever that is. And you send that off to the SIM. And now your network, your network security operations guys are, and gals are looking at that, trying to identify, okay, what's, what's really happening here? I, I think that's, that's one of the areas um, that we should be looking at um, bolstering quite a bit. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you think about everything we're talking about, it's, it's really not manageable by a human being, no matter how intelligent the human being or team of human beings is that automation where software can, they're, they're never going to replace the humans or at least not in the foreseeable future. <laughs> um, but having software help them where to take a look, where, you know, automate things instead of having to manually build policies or write code to script things, a lot of things to make the humans more efficient. I, I would tend to agree that that would help the industry at large and something vendors really could help to do. Right, exactly. And that's that's what I, I think. I think on, on another side where it's not necessarily open source, but you know we've been talking about this since 2015. The Department of Energy has, has been issuing grants to different organizations to build the first Exaflop supercomputer. 
Um, and you know, we're not there yet. And I think one of the reasons we're not there yet is because we haven't found a file system yet that can actually feed the cores, uh, of an exaflop supercomputer. But I think once we reach that, that level, um, I think that from a research perspective, uh, that's going to change the game for us. Um, not only, you know, you know, nationally here in the United States, but globally for everybody. I mean, it's going to be a good thing for us to, to reach that, that level. And it was supposed to be delivered in 2020. We all know what happened in 2020. Um, and I think that, um, you know, 2025 is the new, is the new date that we're looking at, but, um, I'll be excited when we, when we actually see a true exaflop supercomputer, that means that we've also, we've also developed a file system that can, that can drive those cores, which is uh, going to be very important, but. Absolutely. I think that I could talk to you about all kinds of different topics on this, um, you know, and it, it it's interesting that, uh, that, that idea of scale, you know, so exaflop requires massive performance, read, write, IO patterns, but also massive scale. And this is an interesting thing that object storage doesn't overcome. So object storage is massive in the number of objects, but it doesn't serve that purpose of an exaflop file system either. Um, you know, so it's interesting that as you watch how innovation has occurred, it's been kind of like, okay, let's pull the operating system out of the server and put in the storage array. Okay, now let's scale across arrays. And then it was like, okay, great, build object storage. Now we're back to, but <laughs> we still need that file system and we need it at scale. And I know there's a lot of very interesting conversations occurring there in the innovation side, um, but it's it's a great um, way to tie it to some of these national um, security as well as, um, you know, this is, it helps drive our economy. The, the companies with, or the countries with the biggest supercomputers or the most compute power tend to be the economic leads too. It's interesting that you can almost track it directly. When you look at the top 10 largest supercomputers, those are usually the largest economies too. So it all matters in interesting interconnected ways. I think the fastest uh, supercomputer uh, still to date is in Japan and I think it's at 415 uh, petaflops, I think. Um, I haven't looked at the list in the last couple of years, but it certainly yeah. could be. I, lo I looked at it within the last six months. I'm pretty sure it's it's still in Japan. Now, there's there's some there's some strides being made on the, um, you know, where, like NVIDIA with their GPU technology, and they're working with um, with AMD. I believe it's AMD. Um, they've been able to kind of get bursts at exaflop, but it's it's not it's not a consistent. So I, I'm I'm hopeful as I see this stuff happen. And here's the cool thing about this. And I know this is completely off our topic here, but here's the cool thing about this is uh, when I start looking at at the supercomputer end of things, it reminds me a lot of the Unix community, where everyone is willing to share anything and everything you have to try to reach. Uh, uh, the end goal. And so it's kind of like open source on steroids, <laughs> the supercomputer totally world. Yeah. It totally and so is. reading this stuff has been just fascinating for me and, and seeing what people are doing and learning about what file systems and open source potentially could, could reach those, those levels. And then what file systems I'm looking at in the market today that I think also could hit those levels probably more quickly. Yep. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. 
Well, David, this has been great having you on. Um, I tried to throw you a curveball at the beginning and get you to play some music for us, and I didn't give you <laughs> enough notice. But where can we, um, you know, thinking of this collaborative, distributed world we live in, where can we hear some of your music? I certainly know where we can find a lot of your technology insights. So um, Spotify, there's a, the, they put up uh, an EP um, of some original songs off an album that I recorded uh, called The Storyteller. And so that's on Spotify. Uh, that song, that uh, album, actually, that EP has W.S. Holland playing drums. Now, W.S. Holland was Johnny Cash's drummer uh, for almost 40 years. And he and I played together for five years until he passed away in, in 2020. But the last two albums he ever recorded were mine. Uh, so I feel like that's that's a pretty good uh, thing to have on my musical resume. Uh, but you could also Google David Chapa Music. Um and what you may find are um, uh, you'll find my YouTube channel. You also find uh, some spots on the Fox Morning Show in Branson, Missouri, um, where I'd always stop off before heading to Tennessee to do some recording. So uh, David Chapa Music uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, YouTube. Thanks so much for joining today, David. Always fun to catch up with you, and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. I hope so. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Hammerspace.